Well, good morning. Good to see you, Redeemer family. Uh, well, as we get started, would you open with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. The usual rules for family discourse are what? We don't talk about religion, faith, and we don't talk about politics. Fortunately, those rules aren't in the Bible. Uh, God's word speaks to every nook and cranny of our lives, shining light into dark places. Um, And that's God's grace to us. Uh, We need God's wisdom uh, in all these areas. And so this is why at Redeemer, one of the things we love is we love walking through books of the Bible. And by God's sovereignty, as we do that, we're confronted with uh, his truth. Uh, Maybe things we might not normally talk about. Um, so today should be a fun one. Let me, let's, let's look through 1 Peter 2 uh, and let's start in verse 11. So would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Starting in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, They will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as they are sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. So last week we we saw the beauty of the church, of God's people, that we are not individual bricks scattered about on the ground, but no, the Lord has built a spiritual house. Uh, We're a chosen race, a holy nation. Together, we're his people. And as beautiful as that is, We're not a commune, right? Uh, We don't live here at Concordia. There's school here during the week, so we definitely can't live here. Uh, We are building a building over on Baker Drive, but guess what? That building has no bedrooms uh, and definitely not enough bathrooms. There's no showers. We could not live there. Um, God's not calling us to uh, buy up a neighborhood and all move together and form our own government there. No, the church is this amazing embassy, uh, but it's only a taste. There is a kingdom coming. Uh, but we are not fully there. We still live here in a world with rulers and authorities. We are citizens of heaven, but we're also citizens of America. So how will, uh, how will we, those who are longing for a heavenly home, how will we live as exiles and yet citizens? And we're gonna look at four ways today. Number one, we're gonna live as honorable aliens. Number two, submit to human authority. Number three, use freedom for honor. And number four, look to the servant king. Would you join me as we pray? Father, would you help us today? We need you. We need our lives to be um, under your guidance, your kingship, your lordship over our lives. Would you, um, as our kind and loving father, our benevolent King, uh, would you lead us by your spirit today to hear your word, not, not, 
not anyone else's word, but to hear your words for us today. And would you help us to follow, to obey, and to, be, to stand in awe of who you are. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, about a year ago, uh, my wife, who loves planning trips, uh, she planned this trip where we were gonna go visit some family up north. Um, and, and along the way, we were gonna spend one night in New York City, right? Because that's about all you can afford to do in New York City, uh, one night. Um, and by God's grace, I saw it. I, like, I was watching the calendar and I was like, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. And it happened. Our trip landed right in the middle of the American League Championship Series where guess who was playing? The Astros. And on the one night that we were in New York City was game five of the American League Championship Series, the Astros in Yankee Stadium. So what did, I, what did we have to do? <laughs> My son and I went, right? We had to get tickets, we went. And, uh, and so as that day, we, we were seeing all sorts of other stuff. And as the day, you know, as we walked around Manhattan, uh, we, we had our Astros gear tucked nicely under coats um, because we're smart. Um, but as the day went on, you begin to, you know, kind of loosen up a little bit and the Astros hat comes out and then immediately it just starts to happen, right? It's like, beat the Yankees or other not as kind things from Yankees fans. And, and so it, it, was, it was, as game time got, got near, um, you know, it was, it was time, right? So we, we, as we, get, we get to the subway and I'm, uh, we, we start to unveil, take the coat off, put on all the other Astros gear. Um, and, and there it was, we started to see it. They're on the subway platform, uh, a little more orange, right? A little more, uh, a little more of, of friendly faces. Um, and, and so the game goes on. We even met some Yankees fans who, you know, like to have a little conversation. Um, and they generally restrain themselves around my 11-year-old. Um, he learned some words, but, uh, but slowly, in the end, the Astros won, by the way. Uh, and slowly, as the Yankees fans kind of trickle out of the stadium, um, what's left is mainly just the orange, right? And we, uh, we begin to slowly move toward one another. And by the end, all the Astros fans are down field level, standing together. Um, and we were aliens in New York on mission together, but it was not our home. And as Christians, we, we aren't just exiles in the wrong city. We are strangers on earth. We're not just in the wrong stadium. And so how must we live here? Number one, we live as honorable aliens. Peter says in verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles. This is the first time Peter has used the word exiles since the greeting of the letter. Um, and I love, if you go look at all the different English translations of, of, this, uh, of this verse, I love all the different words that are used. Uh, aliens, strangers, pilgrims, sojourners, Long story short, you're not home. Paul says in Philippians 3, your citizenship is in heaven. Literally, this earth stuff is good, but, but if you're in Christ, your, your primary citizenship, your primary government, it, that's, that's transferred now. Calvin said it this way, the, the children of God, wherever they may be, are only guests in this world. So your passport may say USA, uh, but it's a done deal for heaven. You aren't gonna wait in customs when you get there. Your place in the kingdom of heaven, if you're in Christ, is secure. And it's always been like this for God's people. Uh, listen to what Hebrews 11 says about Abraham. 
In verse nine, it says this, by faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundation, whose architect and builder is God. And it wasn't just Abraham. Just a few verses later, we see more about God's people, that they aren't just exiles, they're heading somewhere. Verse 14, it says they're, they're seeking a homeland, a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. This is us, travelers here, like, like Abraham, only pitching tents, never pouring slabs. In fact, this is central to our identity. Uh, the early Christian church often referred to themselves as, as parishes, which comes out of the Greek word uh, for exiles. The word is literally, the, the, the church is, is literally a fellowship of exiles. So if we're exiles, then what is the greatest danger for God's people when we're in exile? It wasn't persecution. When God's people were exiled to another nation, it wasn't death that was the greatest, uh, the greatest danger. No, those things only served to strengthen God's people. But who, who could destroy them in exile? What could destroy them? The new nation. The new culture was always calling. The choice was available. Adopt the new way of life. Blend in. Worship the gods of the new land. Eat their foods. Assimilate. Or stay distinct. Stay holy. Be in the world, but not of it. Seek the welfare of the city there, Jeremiah says, but without partaking uh, in sin. And then when necessary, endure the persecution and suffering that comes with refusing to assimilate. And this is the choice that's in front of us, Peter says. He says there in verse 11, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. You are being drawn to plant roots here, to forget about the heavenly city and the paradise there. And, and there's an assault. Sin is always crouching, waging war against your soul, Peter says. And too often we, we, we play the victim, I think. The evil culture is against us. Uh, us poor Christians, we're just trying to be godly here and, and, and everyone keeps persecuting us. And certainly there, there is opposition. But it seems more often than that, we are less often the victim and more the willing participants. See, we're fighting a different battle the war against our own sinful hearts. We are tempted to join in and gratify the flesh, to choose the comforts of Babylon over the living hope of a Godward life, to chase the American idols of comfort and success, of vanity and pride, of the approval of man rather than the approval of God. And Peter is saying, abstain, flee from that. Why? Because remember who you are. You're a chosen race. You're holy. This, this isn't your lasting city. But beyond that, he's saying assimilating is gonna destroy your soul. Partaking in the idols of this culture will leave you empty. But in Christ, there is fullness of life. Like Daniel, who rejected the choice foods of Babylon, Christ, Christ's given you the victory. By his power, you're able to resist. And in verse 12, he says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. If, you, if we don't partake, we will be maligned. 
The church throughout history was falsely charged with all sorts of things. They're cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. They worship the dead. They hate the government because they say that Jesus is their king. And the same is going to continue. They will say that you are evil because you don't live like the world. It's dumb that you devote your time to the poor, that you visit prisoners. It's strange that you live below your means, that you submit yourselves to a church family. It's wrong that you live your life according to a 2,000 plus year old book. It's intolerant, your views on marriage, on gender roles, on justice for the oppressed, on the exclusivity of the gospel, just to name a few. You're narrow-minded, they'll say. And are we prone to sin, prone to get some of these things wrong? Absolutely. But if we persevere in righteousness, if you live as a citizen of heaven, one day, whether, whether now or when Christ returns, many will see your life and will give glory to God. Anytime I, I do a, a wedding, I always look at the bride and the groom and I, I tell them, hey, in, in this day of, of self-serving love, if your marriage is marked by self-sacrifice, by a keeping no record of wrongs kind of love, it, it will stand out. It will shine brightly. And this is exactly, I think, what Jesus anticipated in the Sermon on the Mount when he said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Number two, to, to live as exiles, we must submit to human authority. All right. Okay, so here we go. Verse 13, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Every human authority. That's a pretty all-encompassing statement. Uh, you wanna talk about two words uh, that our culture does not like, authority and submission. If you walked into your workplace and asked your friends or maybe, maybe some other circle of friends, hey, tell me what you think about submitting to authority. In fact, just don't do that tomorrow at work. That would make your workday less fun. Generally, these are not concepts that, frankly, that a lot of us enjoy. Why? Why do we dislike authority? I think first, because sometimes there are actually wicked authorities. People abuse authority. Many of us have been let down by authorities, whether by politicians, by a boss, by a parent, by a church leader, by a spouse. When those who have authority in our lives mistreat us, our trust in authority is eroded. And this is one of the pains of living in a fallen world. But other times I, I think we, we dislike authority because we're wicked. And this was the original sin of Adam and Eve. Rather than obeying God, they rebelled against his authority. They decided they knew best. It's our own pride that says, they can't tell me what to do. I have rights. Who do they think they are? Do they know who I am? And this is, this is pride. This is the sin of Satan, the angel of light. But still, we are called to submit ourselves, not only to God, but to humans. What does it mean to submit? It literally, the word means, the Greek word just means to place oneself under, to place under. So as the Lord situates us under flawed human beings and gives them authority in our lives, we submit, we obey. In fact, Peter is gonna say next week, sometimes we submit to authorities who are even unjust in their demands. 
You mean sometimes I'll be treated unfairly and I'll just endure? Stay tuned next week. But, but here, here's the framework. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him. How do we walk as God's children? By submitting. Christians are to be those who submit, whether to teachers or to government, whether parents or policemen or the president. This means Christians obey the laws. We obey our leaders. Okay, I know we're really messing now, right? Uh, but before, I, before we get into this, I, I just wanna acknowledge like, something really important about the text here. Uh, who was the emperor of Rome? Who was Peter asking these Christians to submit to? Let's just do a little history here. Was it a Republican? Was it a Democrat? No, the Roman Empire was led by Nero, who, let's be honest, was one of the most cruel leaders in recorded human history. So let's, let's just meet Nero. After Nero becomes emperor, uh, he became paranoid and he had his own mother killed. Soon after, he had his first wife executed because she was unable to get pregnant. Two years later, a fire breaks out in Rome and Nero says, you know what? I'm gonna blame the Christians. And he began one of the greatest, most intense persecutions in the history of the church. According to the historian Tacitus, uh, here's what it was said of, of Nero. It says, to stop the rumor uh, that he had set Rome on fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on the persons commonly called Christians. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or they were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Awful. This is the brutality. This was the brutality that was coming to the church. In fact, Peter himself would be crucified under Nero's horrific reign. This is no distasteful politician to be voted out. So how, how is this sort of submission even possible? I think the key phrase in all this is because of the Lord. Submit to human authority because of the Lord for his sake. I think if we miss this phrase, we, we can really get off the rails. There, there, is, there is a sort of submission to authority an allegiance to nation, an allegiance to flag that isn't because of the Lord. And as a Christian, submission to authority for us is not an end in itself. For us, submission to proper authority is a submission to God. It's to him. When you relate properly to a policeman, that is Godward submission. When you relate properly to a president, to a teacher, or to tax laws, it's for the Lord's sake. And as American Christians, I think we really struggle with this. And I think there's a couple of reasons. There's probably many reasons, but I think I'm gonna hit two of them. First, I think the first reason we struggle is rebellion is how we got started, right? Standing up to unjust authority, it's in our DNA as Americans. We are the ultimate protest people, the ones who push back against corrupt leaders through civil and even in times past, not so civil disobedience. So to submit to human authorities, especially unjust ones, it doesn't even compute, right? 
Like it, it, it's very difficult for us. Our, fa- our founding fathers wrestled with this idea. If you go, go read the arguments they make in the Declaration of Independence, it's fantastic. It's great to see how they're wrestling with this very idea. But it's not just America. Imagine how Peter, a Jew, uh, would have felt. In the Old Testament, what did God's people see? How had they seen God handle unjust authorities? In Egypt, after his people suffered in slavery, uh, God freed his people and then struck down the cruel Pharaoh. He would vanquish nations that would mistreat Israel. And this is what they wanted. This is what they looked for in Jesus. They, this is what they thought was coming in their Messiah, a revolution. The Jews wanted the Messiah to be a military leader, to oppose Rome with force. Salvation through the sword. And I think even still, there's some, some of us that that's, we probably want that even now. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus came in humble service. He brought salvation through suffering, through death. So is there now no room for civil disobedience? Are there times where we should disobey our leaders to enact change or to demonstrate faithfulness to God? This is a long and complex conversation, one that'd be fun to have. Um, We're not gonna get into it fully this morning, uh, but the simple answer is yes. Part of the beauty of our country is that we are afforded the right to protest, to speak out against immorality. We can march in a pro-life rally. We can speak about racial injustice. Why? Because it's good and right to speak truth. But more than that, we see examples in scripture of those who disobeyed. Why? Not, Not necessarily even just to change a law or a practice, Daniel, when when told not to pray, what did he do? He prayed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when commanded by King Nebuchadnezzar to worship an idol or die, what did they do? They refused. Rahab gave lodging to the Israelite spies knowing that she might die. The Hebrew midwives disobeyed Pharaoh to protect babies from certain death. And soon after this letter, even when Nero comes to kill Christians, some will serve to help to hide one another from his wrath. Even Peter, the one who wrote the letter, stood before the Jewish rulers and authorities with his life threatened. And what did he say? He said, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Is civil disobedience uh, the norm amongst God's people? I I don't think it is. But where the gospel is opposed, where injustice or evil is commended, it may be necessary. But our our approach is, is one of doing good. This is Peter's instruction. Even in our civil disobedience, we do so in love. We do so in nonviolence. Like our older brother Jesus, we don't return evil for evil. And we joyfully accept, as Hebrews says, the plundering of our property. We're prepared for the world to hate us. The second reason I think we struggle with submission is because in our country, we, we are the government. We learned this in grade school, right? That, that our government is of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's beautiful. Praise God, what an opportunity that we are afforded in our country. We get to be a part. We get to vote. This is how we enact change. We get to identify the improvements we'd like to see. And we get to 
seek the best ways that we know to seek the flourishing of our nation, our state. And we get to, to vote for the ones we think that can lead us there. In fact, we can run for office ourselves. So I'm not gonna say thus saith the Lord on this one, but, but I think, it's, it, I feel confident in this as one of your pastors and saying, you should vote. By God's grace, you're part of the leadership of our country. By your vote, you get to speak for the voiceless. You get to serve the weak, the vulnerable, the poor, the unborn. You get to, you get to, you get to speak up for religious liberty, for racial equality. These are all issues that should matter to Christians. So we vote, but we vote as exiles. Will any candidate perfectly encapsulate the Christian position? No. Will our hope for America ever fully be realized through the government? No. So we vote. And then when the vote is cast and the authority is transferred to those who will represent us, we submit because of the Lord. Number three, we use our freedom for honor. Look at verse 15. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. So you're free. Yes, we love this. But this is not democratic freedom. This is not a free to do whatever you want sort of freedom. That's not what Peter's talking about. No, he, he says submit as free people not as those who must be forced. Why? Because your submission is pointing to the fact that you are servants of a greater king. All of your submitting is ultimately a trusting, a serving God himself. So how will we best be Americans? How will we best be citizens here? Look at verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Christians, we should be, we should be great citizens. God's calling you uh, to be an American, but to be so in such a way that America is not ultimate. Russell Moore said it this way. I think this is great. He said, we are Americans best when we are not Americans first. So, so how, how will we do this? I want us just to listen to these exhortations from Peter and we're just gonna settle on each one. Honor everyone. Honor everyone. The news media and social media has, has taken to, to, to grabbing the person that you most vehemently disagree with and placing them right in front of you. And, and this is the culture of our world. This is what Babylon is up to. This is, what, this is the flavor of America right now, to despise, to demonize. And if we aren't careful, we will, we will partake. But if we do this, we will miss the honor due each and every image bearer of God. The most avowed atheist, the celebrity adulterer, the biased news reporter, the Planned Parenthood worker, your unkind coworker, the death row inmate, the politician, your most politically frustrating friend, honor everyone. This means value them, esteem them, understand what their worth is. The image of God is in all people, 
which makes every person you see valuable, worthy of dignity, worthy, worthy of honor. And, and the Lord shows us how. And here's how he did it. When we were hostile to him, we were his enemies, strangers to the promise. He treated us with honor, with kindness. He esteemed us at great cost to himself. Do you, do you honor everyone? Do I honor everyone? Would the words you use to describe your political opponents, though you may disagree on important issues, would those words be recognized as words of honor? Do you use the same off-color names as the world when referring to liberals, when referring to conservatives? And then Peter says, love the brothers and sisters. This is huge. Do we love the family of God? As we learned in our series in 1 John, Christian love is self-sacrificial. It's a laying down of yourself for others. Being in a family is all fine and good until someone eats the last piece of pizza, right? Until someone refuses to do their chores and now you have to. When we read the commands to love one another, we should immediately think, love your brother, your sister, when he wrongs you, when she disagrees with you, or just when they flat out annoy you. This is when we must love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his great little book, Life Together, go read it. He talks about how we build up a perfect wish dream of Christian community in our minds. A family where everyone serves perfectly, where we all agree politically about every social topic we're on the same page, basically where no one bothers us. And he says this, he says, but God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. He who loves his dream of a Christian community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. And then he says, because God has already laid the foundation of our fellowship long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life, not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call and by his forgiveness. Do, do you love your Christian brothers and sisters? Here, here's one way to know, I think. Do you sacrifice winning arguments for them? Are you quick to give up preferences to preserve unity? Or, and, and I think this is big, when you spot a point of disagreement, whether of politics, whether of secondary theological points, or, or even convictions about COVID, are you quick to write fellow Christians off, to label them, to call them heretic, liberal? This is happening everywhere. Christians devouring other Christians and in this, we sound just like the world. We sound just like Babylon. Paul says this in Galatians. He says, if we keep biting and devouring each other, we will consume each other. Our culture through social media, through politics is fanning the flame. And amongst the people of God, this must not be. Our response to these second level disagreements with brothers must not end with someone yelling heretic but by, by someone saying, brother, sister, I love you. 
We're family, members of one another, co-heirs with Christ. Now, about that disagreement, let's talk more. Let's reason together. Let's learn from one another. Let's seek to understand each other. And then let's be patient with each other. This is brotherly love. It's not easy. But as exiles, let's not devour one another as the world is. Instead, may our love for the brotherhood, our love for our brothers and sisters make, make strong the household of God. Mark Dever says it this way. He says, before and after America, there was and will be the church. The nation is an experiment. The church is a certainty. And then Peter says, fear God. This binds it all together. Only one person on this list receives our fear, better, better yet, our worship. Uh, honor is due everyone, but worship goes to the Father. We respect the authority, that, authority God has given to government. We stand in honor of human authorities over us, but we kneel in reverence and in fear at awe and at awe in the power of God. There is no earthly king who has hurled planets into space. No ruler's strategic plan invented photosynthesis. No president scooped dirt in his hand, formed it and breathed life into it. Who is like unto him? There is only one. We just sang glory, glory. There is no other king than Jesus, Lord of all. There is no one, no human leader, no social movement, no pastor, no politician, no party or president who has ever do the devotion, fame, and worship that belongs only to the king who is over all kings. And if we rightly believe this, now we can honor the emperor. This word really just means king. Honor the king. Remember, remember Nero, right? Awful. Still, Peter says, honor him. Why? Proverbs 21 says, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. If you fear God, if you're in, in awe of his immense beauty and power, you can honor an earthly ruler, whether noble or evil. Because now you can see that their power exists only so much, only so far as God permits it. But, but as human authorities, we still recognize the imago dei, the image of God on display, even in kings, even in presidents. And so this is our calling to, to honor them, not to curse our leaders, not to mock them, not to share half-truths about them, not to call them names. Certainly we can and we should voice our disagreements. There will be times where we must speak truth to those in power. And yet we still honor the innate value, the worth, the position of our leaders. If we're unable to acknowledge the honorable things about political figures that we disagree with, then we are missing the image of God on display. If they have policies that you despise, but seem to be loving fathers or loving mothers, acknowledge this. Praise God for it. This is the image of God on display. If they have failed morally, but still have stood for policies that are good. Thank God for this. Honor this. 
Yes, speak truth, but we honor. First Timothy 2. Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made to all, for all people, for kings and for all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So we pray for them, we honor them. With an election just three weeks away, I, I just ask, how are we doing with this? H- have we honored? Have we esteemed the worth and the position of our leaders because honor seems really, really nice until it gets specific, right? I'm just gonna put a few of these up here. You remember President Bush? He became a very easy target. And there were many jokes about him. How did we do? Did we honor him? Did we pray for him? Even if you disagree with him, did you honor him? How about President Obama? How did you do? Did you esteem him highly? Where you disagreed, were you still able to acknowledge the image of God on display in him? There are so many others. Governor Abbott, Mayor Turner, Judge Hidalgo, even in Tomball, Mayor Fagan. And this very month, as the debates rage around us, how will we honor former Vice President Biden? How will we honor President Trump? How, how are we doing? Do we respect them? Do we respect the position that God has given them? Even when they are difficult to respect, will we esteem them rightly as image bearers of God? By God's grace, may Redeemer Church not echo with the anger and anxiety of America that we find on CNN, on Fox News, or on Twitter but with the unwavering worship of our King, no matter the political landscape. As as exiles here, this will shine. Many will say to you, why aren't you worried? Why do political victories not fully excite you? Why do political defeats not fully discourage you? And like those before us, we, by God's grace, will reply, we are seeking a better place, a heavenly city, whose architect and builder is God himself. When we honor the rulers of this earth while we wait for that kingdom, Christ is honored. And I'll end with this final point. Number four, look to the servant king. Look at Peter's definition of a good government in verse 14. He says, it's to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. This is a a general purpose statement about government. And by God's grace, this is what we hope it will do. Um, but, but it won't. Uh, Nero didn't, certainly. Our three branches won't do it perfectly. Sure, we will still work. We will still hope, but not an ultimate hope. There is only one kingdom where evil is perfectly punished. And the evil that was punished, it was not the evil out there. It was the evil of your heart the evil of mine. It was the evil thoughts and idolatries, the inner rebellion of my hatred and my pride. It was the disobedience and immorality of my rebellion against the greatest emperor, the king of all kings. But instead of punishing me, the sword of justice fell upon Christ. The crimes of my high treason against God fell on Jesus. 
the one who's upon whose shoulders the eternal government of the world will, will rest, he received a different sort of kingly coronation. He was given thorns as a crown. Instead of a scepter, he received nails in his hands and a spear to his side. Our king, deserving of the highest honor, received a death sentence for my crimes and for yours. And as only our king could do, the death sentence didn't take. He rose again. And his ascent into glory will only be outdone by his future coronation. When the king returns to bring his kingly rule to the new earth. And in this coming kingdom, all will know there is only one who is good. And the chorus of heaven, the saints across all ages will echo his name, his reign forever and ever. Amen. So now, Christian, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, we so badly need your grace. We're so prone to not acknowledge your kingship over all of the rulers of this earth. We are so caught up in the debates of the day and the political climate of the day and that we do not submit ourselves to you. That we do not trust in you and entrust ourselves to our faithful creator who is to be forever trusted. And so Father, as we are citizens here, would you help us? And this is not our home and we feel it. We need your help. We need your spirit to help us live well here. And we need you. Would you remind us who we are and what you've done for us in Christ? We pray all this in his name. Amen.